all, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. Today, it's a real pleasure to have somebody who I interviewed on this program about seven years ago, Sarah Goff. And Sarah's the Safeguarding Disabled Children and Young People Manager at the Anne Craft Trust. Now, some of you who are regular listeners to the program may just remember way back seven years ago, um, about all the work that we talked about that they were doing. And my understanding is they're just as busy today and just as consumed today with protecting and safeguarding disabled children and raising awareness about the particular situation that arises with them. Sarah, good, good morning and welcome. Thank you, David. Good morning. It's great to be back with you. Now, you're still at Nottingham University, aren't you? Based there. Yeah, the Anne Craft Trust is is housed mm. in the Centre for Social Work. Mm. We're, uh, but we were set up in the 90s after Anne herself died. She'd been one of the first people researching um, around learning disabilities and sexual abuse and looking at the rights of disabled young people to a fulfilled life, but a safe one. Nearly 30 years now, Anne Craft's yes. been around, my yes. goodness. Anyway, right. Well, now, look, let's get into it, because I want to I, I want to hear and I'm sure lots of people do as well. What the latest thinking is, what the latest situation is, problems and successes. So awareness raising always seemed a particular thing to me that was so important within the, the, the wider public about the family's need for greater support. Also looking at issues that are very concurrent again in the news today concerning autism and lack of public understanding. So how would you kind of encapsulate what Anne Craft's doing in that field at the moment? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. We've got three sections to our work at the Anne Craft Trust. I think since we last spoke, um, there's been a huge set of developments in that we do a lot of work now around safeguarding in sport. We also do, as we always have, a lot on safeguarding adults. And my role is around children and young people and the needs of their families. And I'll start with that because that was the, the question. Yeah. I think one of the key things that um, we have heard, and of course COVID has brought it out, exposed the extent of unmet need, but the lack of support to parents and carers around the time of diagnosis, when children um, are growing up, when they're young, the lack of appropriate health and support in a consistent way has been a really significant theme. And COVID highlighted that for a lot of disabled children. When schools were closed and when the big lockdowns happened and children weren't able to get to schools, for many with disabilities who have lots of um, therapeutic help and support through their schools, they missed a lot of those additional therapies and helps in their daily lives. And that, of course, had significant effects on children's um, development and children's progress. I think we know from the work of the Disabled Children's Partnership and from some of the key reports that were released by them, just how severe the effects of COVID were on families. We also know from organisations like Contact, the extent of 
unmet need of families. And some of the research that's been done by, um, for example, the Equality and Human Rights Commission key report from 2017, being disabled in Britain, highlighted some of the financial issues, some of the economic pressures and the poverty for some families growing up, for some parents unable to work and for many families the patchy and inconsistent nature of services across England mm. has meant real gaps. Um, and that's played out in real lives. You know, you can look at it from a strategic angle at the, uh, you know, the spread of services across the country, or you can look at it from the lens of an individual family's direct experience of maybe not getting the right help and support. For example, if they have an autistic child, maybe they don't get enough sleep. Maybe they haven't had the right help to understand the diagnosis. Maybe they're feeling very isolated, don't get enough help with developing speech and language, don't get the right support to understand behaviour and start to struggle trying to care perhaps for other family members. Mm. Some families do fantastically. They have resources. Others struggle enormously. There's a case in the West Country of England that I was just listening to yesterday of a 19-year-old autistic lad who killed himself after years and years and years of struggle with exactly what you were saying. The family were, you know, were absolutely anguished at what they felt was the lack of support, the lack of information, starting, of course, with the lack of a diagnosis even. And effectively then the, the, the lad turned to all sorts of different things. And the last advice he got unbelievably, was from a counsellor who said, well, why don't you just download a mindfulness app? And effectively, you know, that to me just highlighted the absolute paucity sometimes of services and understanding that's available. I mean, do you think it is that a, a distinct lack of understanding or you think that people just somehow write off disabled people uh, as a kind of, a, if you like, a lower priority sometimes? I think there's a number of things. Um, many young autistic people um, would be proud of their identity and feel um, strong within that. For others, not having the right help and support has really hampered their lives. Um, we're very aware, I think, that getting the right help early, understanding children's diagnosis and what it means for their day-to-day -day lived experience is a very very individual thing autism is a whole spectrum and um i'm certainly not an autism expert i'm a social worker who has worked to try to understand the best ways for us to mm -hmm. support families and one of the key things is to listen to what families tell us and tell us about what they need every child's an individual there are some patterns of needs that we're growing to understand there has been an enormous step forward in terms of research and development around understanding neurodevelopmental need. Um, but I think a key issue for us is that mainstream practitioners in health, education, social work, police, other agencies, those ordinary frontline social workers, teachers, policers, police officers, doctors, won't necessarily have had any training in autism. Okay. And that, I think, means... Sometimes the front door does not understand what families and children need. 
No, I understand that, and I, I, I must admit my own personal work experience echoes that to the limit. One of the main worrying areas is the vulnerability of some young people, especially those who've got learning needs, and the, their sexual exploitation, um, amongst other kinds of exploitation. But that's something that Anne Craft focuses on, doesn't don't they? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some there's some key issues really. I guess um, the some of the key reports that have come out recently have really highlighted there's a spectrum of opportunity report from the chief social workers, which has said very very clearly that we need to look at supporting these families when children are young mm. and look at them through mm. a supporting families lens, not a child protection lens. We need to make sure that these families have help with things like sleep and communication and sensory needs when children are young so that we can enable that child to grow as well and safely and comfortably as they can in their own development. And the more we can do to invest in children and families when children are young, the less that will lead to families struggling later. And we know that there's a potential for breakdown later. We've got numerous organisations highlight some of the problems around breakdown. Contact, Challenging Behaviour Foundation, numerous pieces of work. We know that not getting the right help and support in early can lead to children struggling later. And I'll come back to some of those issues uh, that you mentioned in, in a minute around yeah. sexual exploitation and so on. But I think it's very important that we take the stress caused to families and what organisations like Camp Contact tell us. The National Network of Parent Care Forums exists to really support families and some of these organisations have developed helplines and provide support to parents. But the problem that we've still got is a patchy and inconsistent level of service provision. We've very recently had a new autism strategy published and we look forward to seeing how that will develop. But what we're all wanting to do is raise awareness of the rights of these families to the right help and support when children are young to prevent breakdown when they start to move towards puberty, adolescence and moving into secondary school and bigger environments that are less less sensitive to children's individual needs and actually that's been a, a big piece of learning uh, for all of us over the last you mentioned of time. you mentioned frontline professionals being uh, under trained in in, in in this work i mean <clears throat> what about at the universities what about at the training stages at the qualifying stages of, of all these disciplines not just social work you know the police as you said health education so forth what about when the, during in their training? Is there much that more that can be done then? Because that, for me, was the time to actually um, educate and inspire people to think about these things. And understanding um, that every child is different, and learning about autism should be a key part of training that is across the board for social care and health staff, and I would argue too for for um, education and police and so on, we all need to recognise diverse um, 
diversity within our communities. And you mentioned earlier delays in diagnosis, delays in pickup, delays in recognition, delays in understanding run throughout all the work I do. And I, and I think you're right. I don't think there is enough emphasis um, at undergraduate level in training across these key disciplines. We have some specialists who are very, very knowledgeable, and that's a very important pillar of support. But we need the mainstream professionals to also understand because the vast majority of these children are not open to specialist services in disability. Many young people with autism are in mainstream schools. Mm. To what extent, though, um, ordinary TAs and teachers have been trained to meet their needs, that is a real worry. And when we look at some of Ofsted's data about exclusions and off-rolling, I think we're very concerned um, that for these children, the understanding of their individual and sensory and behavioural needs isn't always present. And sometimes their behaviour is seen as naughty and punished rather than us trying to make sense of what a child's behaviour is telling us um, and listening to children. Behaviour is often a response to the environment, noise, light, sounds. Maybe if we're in health services and we've got waiting rooms with lots of bipping and light and and noise, it, these can be very anxiety-provoking environments. And some of the key stuff we've learned about autism over the last few years is the significance of the environments creating anxiety for those who have maybe a sensitivity to sound, light, noise, and other other things, other features of the, the world that we put children in. And a big part of the work we need to do is to change thinking so that we put children into environments that feel calm, safe, and comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. Don't have a one-size-fits-all approach but recognise that we need to plan for these children as individuals. But we can't do that if we don't start by recognising their needs when they're young. I was just going to say, now, I mean, there needs to be extensions to what I'm going to say. I appreciate that. But I did a lot of work with um, Tessa Jowell at, at conferences, if you remember, who started at Sure Start. You know, when we we're talking about the first thousand years of a child's life from, from conception through to age two and how that, that totally influences the rest of their life in, in terms of how they behave, how they are affected, how they're dealt with, how, how they respond. But what you're talking about often doesn't emerge before two in terms of being a recognized issue. Is that fair? I'm not a diagnostic expert. No, no, I think I think it's true. I think it's true. Sorry, I just wanted you to reinforce that because honestly, my understanding is that the issues you've described, of which you know far more about than I do, but they don't tend to, as you talked about, you know, that really emerges what you would call as um, problems or, or, or behavioural issues or whatever and, until after. You know, the, the child has kind of um, gone to school or, or that kind of age. That's my understanding. And therefore, I think one of the I think one of the issues that's perhaps the important one is that when parents start noticing that they feel they need extra help mm -hmm. because their yeah. child is is doing things that they're not sure about, or that the presentation of their child is indicating that they're finding social situations or noisy situations or whatever difficult. I think we need to be listening to parents and the key message 
of contact the Disabled Children's Partnership and organizations like Cerebra and the work of people like Luke Clements and the colleagues that I listen to um, in, in trying to understand these needs, what people are saying is we don't listen enough to parents when they ask for help. Yeah. When they ask for help, when children are young and small, they're not getting the right help. Some parts of the country used to have these amazing schemes called Portage. Those services, by and large, don't exist. Parents, when they're starting to ask for help, need to be heard. And we need to get a lot more support in early. Absolutely. The early, I mean, I was just saying, early years work has kind of come and gone and come and gone. Sure Start was dumped. Um, Portage, as you said, has also been gone, has also gone. Um, I, I suppose the postcode lottery is what you're actually seem to be describing. Um, or, or would you say that it's more universal than that? No, I think it's a really good point. I mean, the Office of the Children's Commission, for example, produced a really important report about the coverage of speech and language therapy services across England. And it highlighted patchy and inconsistent services. Mm. And these services are critical. You know, children's communication skills are a very important part of developing their voice, of their autonomy, developing agency and control as they grow up. And families sometimes need a lot of help and support, but also those children need help and support in schools. And without the right availability of these key services, speech and language, another key one, CAM services, mental health services, we're aware of an absolute crisis in the uh, availability of these services to, to respond to the level of need and all kinds of early help and support services for families to strengthen family life and look at how best to respond to the needs of an individual child as they're growing up. The better we can invest in those children young, we know we're helping to minimise the potential for problems as they get older, but yeah, patchy inconsistent services. Yeah. Well, we're going, to, we're going to come back and finish on that, you know, later. But I want to sort of take you into the, the work of Handcraft a, a little bit more and some of the other things we've mentioned because we're about halfway through the program. So let, can we talk about what we mentioned earlier about the, the issue of sexual exploitation and learning needs? And you've said to me, what would help parents who need to, you know, needing to act protectively? Yeah, it's a really important area, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, all children as they're growing up, they, you know, part of growing up, socialising, wanting to make friends and wanting to start to have a independent life and, and also moving towards understanding and having relationships and intimate relationships. And these, these things are very important for families where children have got learning needs and I suppose just going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, some young people with um, autism have learning needs and some mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. And for those young people who do have learning needs with or without autism, I think one of the key things that we're very aware of is that what kids get to do at school in terms of sex education or relationships and sex ed, as it's now called, with a, a compulsory hat on with the new government guidance, of course. But what children get to do at school may not be enough 
for those with learning needs. And we know how challenging it is for teachers to start to deliver some of this curriculum. But we also know that for children to have the right help and support, it's got to be tailored to their individual learning style when they've got learning disabilities. I think we're very mindful from a piece of research that um, Anita Franklin, Alex Toft and myself did with parents for the NSPCC uh, in 2019. We're very conscious that parents often feel that they want more help. It's not a secret, is it, if we're working with an eight or a nine-year-old that sort of puberty and adolescence are coming along. You know, kids need to understand changes to their bodies. You know, what's, what does it mean when your periods start? What does it mean when your body changes? And for some parents of children with learning needs, they may manage fine, but for others, and particularly the ones we spoke to, they would have absolutely valued practitioners saying, how can we help with these areas? What are you struggling with? What kind of discussions should we be having? And how can we make sure that the messages you're getting, that you're giving your child are very consistent with what we're saying at school? And how can we really help go over things and answer questions and be led by this child's best way of learning? How do we gear and tailor learning to what they need? So am I understanding you're right? Right. Am I understanding you're right in saying that you think that current professionals in all these different disciplines that we talked about, if they had more understanding, more awareness, more education about um, the, the diverse community, about effectively what, what children with learning needs uh, need, uh, rather than creating a whole new kind of structure. It's a matter of better education of existing resources. Is that, is that something you were saying? Or do you think we need something completely new? I'm not an educationalist, so that would be a bit beyond my scope. But what I'm very aware of, David, is that as social workers and practitioners working with individual young people with learning disabilities, and young people's families is that the kind of help and support they get on these topics needs to be tailored to the needs of that individual child. And that it's not enough just to think that kids are getting help with this, these issues at school. We know that for many parents, they struggle to have these conversations, but that has a particular impact on young people with learning needs. They need extra help. They face higher risks of harm, both online and in person in terms of sexual harm and, and being exploited and pushed around as they grow up. Higher okay. risks of harm were identified by um, the the key study on protected overprotected that Anita Franklin and colleagues did. Mm-hmm. We know that a key protection is individualised help and support to try and prevent difficulties arriving. Well, my understanding is, and, and I've, I've, there's this Canadian research that I'm aware of that's gone as well, but that ever since the 1950s, apparently, um, it, the fact that children with special needs or children, certainly children with impairments, disabled children, whatever, have, have been uh, abused to a factor of three times as much as children without. Uh, and that has very, very little change over the last six decades or seven decades in terms of, of being able to be addressed by the professional community. 
Um, that's my understanding. Um, would, would that be something that you, you would agree with, or do you think we're making progress? I think it's really hard to know, David, because we don't have any um, broad prevalence, up-to-date research in England. It's been very difficult to get funding, and often these issues are invisible. We've got 2009 Safeguarding Disabled Children Guidance, but it's very out of date. And Oof. research Fine. and materials um, are, you know, we haven't had enough funding to research these issues. We know from the uh, Sullivan and Nutson study in 2000 that, that the uh, figure of three and a half times greater risks across the board for disabled children was identified. But we actually need a much more granulated, um, sophisticated analysis these days. And one of the key issues that I pointed out earlier is that service gaps and service omission create stress for families, which can cause breakdown and lead to greater harm further down the line. Service gaps and service omission mean that families are struggling with situations that they can't always manage. And um I want to be really clear that the vast majority of families do their absolute best. We're doing some work at the moment looking at young people facing sexual exploitation. Mm -hmm. And we know how important it is to see parents as a resource for protection. Parents very often try incredibly hard to get the right help and support. And a massive message from the work of my colleagues, Luke Clements and Anna Aiello, that's just come out recently, is a report called Institutionalising Parent Care Blame. Without the right help and support, families struggle. Asking for help early and not getting it, asking for help further down the line and being blamed or feeling like they receive a punitive response hasn't helped the situation and hasn't helped families. Is all the so, information on what you're saying on the Ancraft Trust website? Because I'm going, um, I, we will promote that on the text of this podcast, of course. Yeah, it's a, you know, bringing this stuff together, David, is quite a challenge. I meant the report, um, the reports you referred to, sorry, the, 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 the studies and the reports, that was all. Yes, because I want yes people some of them to are, and I can... Yeah. Some of them are, and I can certainly send you the links to them. Do that, um, and we'll publish it. No problem at all. Yeah, I, I we did a, yeah. Anita and I did a, a report um, with Alex Toft called Parents and Carers' Views on how we can work together to prevent sexual abuse um, mm. of disabled children. That's that's a report that's available. The um, Institutionalising Parent Carer Blame Cerebral Report is just out, and um, we've got... There's lots of other materials which we can um, try and pull a list together for you a bit, a bit later I would on. very much but appreciate the, it. But the, yeah. the, 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 the message I want to get across is that we need a shift in attitude and recognition. We have pockets of amazing practice across England, but we also have big gaps and we need a different approach to training we have some really important initiatives. The Oliver McGowan training that's being rolled out for aspects of social care and health will make a massive difference to understanding of autism. Um, we are starting to see some incredible initiatives 
that are coming out of the um, dynamic risk register work to try and prevent breakdown and hospital inpatient admissions. Okay. Well, we let's had, talk. Let's, sorry, Sarah. I just, I'm just looking at the time, and I want to make sure we get everything in. But I, I, I wanted to talk about that. There's a, a We Matter Two project that Anne Craft was involved with about domestic abuse, which is an enormous problem within all of our communities. Is, is that something you could mention as well? Yeah, the We Matter Two project was a, a piece of work that we carried out, uh, funded by the Lloyds Bank um, Foundation, mm. and alongside Anita Franklin. Um, we carried out some work talking to 32, I think, it might have been more, uh, individual practitioners from a whole broad range of services that work directly with individual young people that provide domestic abuse services and that are support services. So we talked to lots of different professionals. And what we were interested in was to what extent was there an understanding of the additional risks faced by young disabled people in relationships. And some of the key learning from We Matter Too was that these young people's needs weren't always met. They weren't always reached by domestic abuse services. Domestic abuse services didn't always have enough training and understanding of the needs of deaf or learning disabled young people. And some of the social care workers working with disabled young people hadn't always had enough training in understanding the greater risks that disabled young people face of domestic abuse. And we know from some of the key research that's been done by people like Ravi Tiara or by um, Safe Lives, the domestic abuse uh, project, Safe Lives, we know that young disabled people face much higher risks something like double at least the risks of their non-disabled counterparts. So we were interested in to what extent services and practitioners had thought this through in the way they reached out and delivered their services. And we found that there's some real gaps, there's some real willingness to change and learn. um, And we have some individual services, largely charities like Sign Sign Health, uh, who run a Deaf Hope organisation that telephone help and support to deaf young people. Um, sorry, not telephone help and support, they have to cancel that bit out. But some individual services that are really um, important for deaf young people, um, but they're not spread out across the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember from my time in practice and working with um, children with impairments and adults and deaf children that, and far more um, families who had a deaf child weren't able to sign. And so when you got to the issue of communication problems in teenage years, which we all know are sometimes pretty acute, you had the extra additional problem of actually not even being able to speak to each other uh, when it came to a deaf child's uh, anxieties and problems and issues and stuff like that. I mean, I, I remember that so vividly. But listen, I, we're at the last few minutes of the programme, so what I want to, to ask you to finish with, if I may, is, and it seems rather paradoxical, at that in the time at the moment of the Paralympics, 
when we're celebrating the excellence in the diverse community, um, we are obviously highlighting in this conversation and all the work that Anne Craft does, the challenges to young people um, who have got impairments and who are not really being supported as they should be by the broader community, just like any other child. What would be your messages to sort of sum up within the last couple of minutes, if you would? One of the key things I've learned is the importance of networking. Um, there are so many organisations working hard to try and change cultures and attitudes, raise awareness and get a better focus on early help and support. That is a massive message. We need to listen to families. They need help earlier and we need to be providing it. That needs a shift in attitude and it also needs some policy change from government so that families get assessments when they ask for them and so that families' voices are heard and children's voices are heard. I think networking, you know, we're the Ancraft Trust, but we work with so many really important organisations across the country. You've got the National Deaf Children's Society, you've got Challenging Behaviour Foundation, you've got all sorts of bodies like the Disabled Children's Partnership and Contact respond. So many organisations tackling bits and trying to work together to support each other, to raise awareness and get change. And families and parents are talking about what they need and we need to hear. Mm. Do you think there's, there's, there's hundreds of small organisations? I came upon this in, in a recent programme I did on human trafficking. There's hundreds and hundreds of organisations across the world. And remember that this podcast goes out to, to dozens of countries across the world. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of small organisations focusing on that and doing phenomenal work. But there is a distinct lack of cohesion sometimes amongst them. And that may, would that be more effective, do you think? Yes, of course. And recognising um, the Equalities Act, you know, the rights of children and young people. But listen, I, I mean, we've come virtually to the end of the programme now. And I'll tell you this, we're not going to wait another seven years to come back to what is an enormously important matter. I'll tell you that for a start. I'm really appreciative, Sarah, that you spent the time. I know you're massively busy at university at the moment and you've got 76 things that you're trying to juggle, uh, even on this day. So I really appreciate you coming on to the programme. And um, as you said, if you send me all the links and contacts and whatever, I'll put them on to the text that fronts up the uh, the podcast. But for now, from Ancraft, Sarah Goff, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.